0: But let me thank the organizers of Oxpeace and for including me in this uh, uh, wonderful event, and congratulate them for the work that they're doing. It's very exciting to be part of it. Um, sometime over the coffee break, I'll ask Liz how I got invited and uh, dredged up from the past. I'm sort of more a little more than semi-retired, um, but I'm very committed to the work of long-term peace building, and so I was very very delighted to um, uh, participate. Um, I believe that helping communities and states better understand the nature of their ho- conflicts and how to build the tools to create sustainable, long-term, peaceful relationships is one of the most important tasks for the world today. It's the one thing that brings together so many of the issues on the global agenda whether we're talking about international security, worldwide poverty, or environmental challenges. Much of it comes down to helping individuals develop the tools to solve their day-to-day problems while helping communities and governments manage in an inclusive and sustainable way. Um, I was very touched by Ingrid Betancourt's comments last night because I, I tend to be very naive about world peace. By naive, I don't mean ignorant or silly or whatever. I mean, I really do believe that it depends on each of us individually. Um, Not that this means that we will go it alone. Um, I'm a firm believer, obviously, having spent so much time in the bureaucracy in the last decade in the UN bureaucracy, I'm a firm believer in multilateral approaches and uh, where agreements can be reached and applied in a cooperative manner. Because I also believe that peace building and where we've gotten it wrong in the past and where we're starting to get it right is that peace building depends on bringing together a broad range of actors. How many of us in our lives have been involved in issues where all of the different parties have a very different view of what the problem's all about? And it's a truism that you really can't tackle these enormous issues unless you can get all the actors, all the perspectives at the table and get them at least to agree as to what the problem is. There's going to be a wide variety of ways of tackling solutions, but um, it's so often a tragedy that people have such a different understandings or perhaps even not really much of an understanding of what the real problem is all about. So I would like to tell you a little bit today about how the Peace Building Commission came about, and what it's doing, and what it could be doing. Um, But I'll spend more time on the history. I'm intrigued by the fact that the title of the event today is The Future of Peace Building. And I'm actually going to talk about the past. But I think the past very much informs the future in this case. And Peace Building Commission, like all new entities, especially those which depend on cooperation among member states, um, it's unrealistic to expect miracles from the beginning. It has been criticized, but I think criticisms are, have to be tinged with the recognition that these things take time. Um, I know this audience knows more about why peace building is important, but let me just run over a couple of points of why I think we're here. As I said, I believe it's one of the most pressing global issues today because this means addressing both the threat that um, fragile states and conflict states represent to their own populations in the loss of livelihoods and human dignity and the potential threat which they represent to global security through the increased incidence of civil war and the spillover across borders. It's impossible to meet international goals, the Millennium Development Goals, improved national and global economic conditions, Eradication of disease, climate change, crime, drugs, trafficking—you name it. There's, we really cannot achieve all of our, any of our goals in uh, these areas if, unless we tra- uh, tackle the question of fragile states and help to strengthen them. To say nothing of—and we'll get to this in one of the panels—the the risk of creating enable- enabling environments uh, conducive to terrorist movements. But there's another set of issues, and this is where I go back to the sort of individual beliefs that beyond the risks of global peace and security, addressing crime and the attainment of agreed international goals, we have to ask ourselves in this day and age of tremendous advances, recognizing that the vast majority of people actually live in areas now where improvements in quality of life are either concrete, visible, or at least possible and imaginable, whether we can accept a situation where hundreds of millions of people live in societies, where their situations can only get worse. And this raises the question, which for me is at the core of it, the question of good global citizenship and the argument for an approach based on justice and human dignity. I really believe it's not a question of why we should do this, but how can we not do this? There's also a the question of cost, pay now or pay later, um, either in humanitarian response and peacekeeping. The enormous bill for humanitarian and peacekeeping um, that grows, expo- grows exponentially could be avoided by concomitant investments in building uh, but the world, I'd be happy to get into a discussion as to the obstacles to taking preventive action and, and why it's very difficult for international organizations to take preventive action. The reason being that if you do something and nothing happens, how do you know that what you did has led to the result? And it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, has this has constrained us enormously. Um. Okay, the evolution of peace building in the UN is a post-Cold War story, and um, I'm always a little careful when I look out at the audience and think, oh, there's a lot of people here who, you know, were probably three or four at the end of the Cold War. So I like to remind the younger members of the audience that not to underestimate the importance of the end of the Cold War. Uh, the shift that that... Um, caused in international relations had enormous consequences, with the proxy wars dying out and, and then, however, that took the lid off a lot of internal and interstate conflicts. So um, it wasn't that the end of the Cold War ushered in any era of peace and stability but the security council did become more cooperative all of a sudden they were able to come to an agreement on approaching some of these problems and the but the question was how to harness the range of actors the development humanitarian peacekeeping or whatever and the the problem was that we spent a lot of time in the 90s improving all of these approaches, but we took a long time to learn that what we really needed was how to bring them together to work effectively in an integrated approach. Um, you all know about the uh, Secretary-General butres Agenda for Peace. I won't go into too much detail on that. It is one of the watershed documents. Um, but it's interesting. It talks about peacemaking, peacekeeping, and peace building, but it does not include the development agenda and the need for uh, conflict prevention. And that was, you know, looking back, you can see that that was one of the major mistakes. The, uh, also, the agenda's definition of these elements was based very much on a sequential approach, which was applicable to... Um, state conflicts conflicts between states, you know you had a war and then you had a peace negotiation and then maybe you had peacekeeping and then you started sort of rebuilding and of course that didn 't work in these civil conflicts there were no decisive military victory even when there was a formal peace agreement. And in fact, the peace agreements were nearly all always just ceasefires. And that's another thing. The difference between a ceasefire and a comprehensive peace agreement is fundamentally important to peace building. So you had all of these problems in these countries with refugees and for combatants that needed disarming and internally displaced, the war ravaged economy. And um, not to mention the need to address the underlying causes as to where the conflict came from. And uh, this whole approach of first we have a peace agreement and then we send the peacekeepers and then we rebuild just didn't work in those uh, Situations. So the Security Council was aware of that and they began designing much more complex peace operations with all these non military activities, elections, uh, reform of government institutions. So you had Namibia, um, El Salvador, Angola, Cambodia, which had human rights mandates, uh, elections monitoring, demobilization, reintegration, etc. And also, they started putting in the goal of economic liberalization, the goal of economic reform, but they didn't have the tools or any means to achieve that attached to the peacekeeping mission. However, we all know about the setbacks to peacekeeping in the 90s, and I'm prepared to discuss that a little bit more in the questions um, in terms of the, um, the countries such as Angola, Haiti, Zaire, and Burundi that kept relapsing back into violence. And of course the tragedies of Somalia, Rwanda, and Srebrenica, um, which put a great stain on the reputation of the United Nations. Um, I'm also prepared to talk a little bit more about that because for United Nations in this case, I prefer to read member states. when, When somebody says to you, oh, the UN this or the UN that, always ask them the question, what UN do you mean? You know, the UN is not an external object with its own sovereignty. It's uh, it's the sum of its parts, and we are one of the parts. Um, But the Security Council kind of pulled in its horns after that, and there weren't very many peacekeeping missions approved. And in the late 90s, more humanitarians were dying on the front line than peacekeepers. So we wouldn't send in the peacekeepers, but we were sending our sons and daughters to die on the front line. And um, at the same time, the relief and the development actors were facing very complex environments, therefore. As I said, the humanitarian actors were very much at risk. Humanitarian principles that they thought would protect them were no longer holding in the Caucasus, in Somalia, whatever. And development actors were trying to provide assistance to countries you know, where it was... F- Practically impossible to operate. And they just didn't have the toolkit to deal with conflict and post-conflict countries. So although I say, well, the whole peacekeeping model was avoiding that part, it's true that those responsible, the development actors themselves, they too were unsure of how to operate in those environments. For the humanitarians, the watershed was the first Gulf War. Um, an absolute chaos, and if any of you were at all involved, you will know that hundreds of NGOs and development agencies descended, and it was absolutely a mess. And this, the international response was the creation of the Department of Humanitarian Affairs, which then became the Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. For the development agencies, there was a very interesting thing going on. And for those of you who lived through development policy in the 80s and 90s, does anybody remember the third world debt crisis? In the third world debt crisis, we forget now, in this day and age of stimulus packages and the banks can't fail, that we left these countries to deal with the most horrendous levels of debt that had been put in place by, you know, un, by autocratic governments for which the people were not responsible. We forced them to cut back. We forced austerity on them through structural adjustment to the point that they were absolutely crushed. Um, And then realizing the mistakes of structural adjustment, the development agencies got into a better, more mature relationship with these countries and saying, OK, it's not all about conditionality. It's about partnership. We're going to sit down. We're going to agree, go development goals, and uh, we'll do our best to support you in X, Y, and Z, and you'll do your best to to meet your own targets of governance and anti-corruption and et cetera, et cetera. So you had a very different kind of relationship. And then there were some countries that started to, quote, perform under this model with good performers. And there were some that didn't. And nobody was talking about what to do with the non-performance. And if you look back and analyze who's who in that particular mix, you will see that the non-performers became the aid orphans, the neglected countries, And rather than having 25 donors knocking at their door, they had two or three, the former colonial power and the European Union, and that would be it, probably. And these are the countries that fell into crisis and conflict. So not much has been acknowledged about international responsibility in this regard. It's always their fault. Um, But I think we have a lot to answer for. But a small but significant number of donors, the UK actually being foremost among them and the Nordics, did begin to develop new approaches to operating in immediate post-conflict environments. And at the UN, there was greater emphasis on coordination amongst the different players, civilian and military, attended millions of meetings with peacekeepers and humanitarians. Um, the OECD Development Assistance Committee started organizing the donors and producing policies and procedures, how to help prevent violent conflict, opening the door for development actors to design new programs. Part of the problem, and people don't realize this, is that a lot of the things that the donors had to do uh, was get involved in areas such as security sector reform, rule of law, um, demobilization of uh, combatants. And these are areas in which donors don't get DAC credit. Now, if you want to reach 0.7% of GNP for your ODA, you have to accept the internationally agreed norms of what overseas development assistance is. And all of these things didn't fall into that definition. So, of course, donors wanted to make sure that all their money went to stuff that gave them uh, credit in terms of the increase in their development spending. So, that was one of the reasons it was so hard. I mean, we box ourselves in with all these rules and regulations. Uh, at the same time, improved coordination on the ground through the UN, humanitarian coordinators working with UN agencies, Red Cross, civil society, and bilateral donors at the UN headquarters. Sadako Ogata, was High Commissioner for Refugees at the time, launched the Brookings process through the Brookings Institution. To look at humanitarian-development interface, there was a lot of talk about um, uh, humanitarian—the um, uh, what was it—the relief-to-development continuum, um, and efforts by development and humanitarian actors to, to deal to deal with this. Where do I start, and where do I stop, and, and you start? And of course, that wasn't the answer. The answer was. How can you and I be in the field at the same time and work towards the same end? Um, The IFIs, the World Bank particularly, and the the UN, um, uh, many of the UN agencies really did actually start to develop the new tools for this. Um, At the same time, with the development of more effective complex peacekeeping operations on the ground, there was a push to get the UN development and the UN peacekeepers together. This was highly controversial. Humanitarian coordinators did not want to be part of a peacekeeping mission. They wanted to be outside the fence where they could deal with NGOs, where they could go up country, where they would have freedom of movement, where they would have uh, 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 separate identity, neutrality. They did not want to be associated. Um, And there's a lot to be, that's an argument we could have. It's a big argument, it's still going on. I call it humanitarian separatism. Um, But, and it's very necessary in some cases, but my own belief now is that it's seriously outmoded and that we all have to be pushing the wheel to, to solve the problems. And in fact, it was Kofi Annan in 2002 who finally said, for God's sake, stop talking about it. And all these committees in the UN going on and on and on about who could work with whom and why and why not. And he finally appointed the UN Humanitarian Coordinator, Alan Doss, in Sierra Leone, as the Deputy Special Representative of the Secretary General, i.e. one of the senior uh, joint number twos in the mission. And that was the end of that. And that has evolved now to be the standard model. Let me just jump back for a moment, because in 2000, the year 2000 was a watershed year in this. Um, after the tragedies of and the withdrawal of the the UN from peacekeeping in the late 1990s, Secretary General Kofi Annan commissioned a comprehensive review of peace operations. Um, you'll all be familiar with the Brahimi report named after Lakhtar Brahimi, Who's currently a special envoy in Syria. Um, and this report changed forever the face of peacekeeping. There are a lot, of, I still hear senior government officials saying, oh, we don't want to do UN, including my own defense people in Canada. We don't want to do UN peacekeeping. Think of remember Bosnia, remember Rwanda. Well, yes, of course we remember, and we changed. The UN is fundamentally a different place. The Brahimi Report introduced more robust, complex, sustained missions designed to stay the course and also encouraged the UN Secretariat to tell it like it is to the Council so that the Council couldn't get away with papering over the cracks the way they did in Rwanda and that if they were going to ignore the advice, then they knew it was on their head and that the UN Secretariat had the right to stand up and say This is actually the way it is. And that's what gave birth to uh, interventions, much more complex and effective interventions. In Kosovo, Timor-Leste, Sierra Leone. Now, all of these had a few steps forward and a few steps back, but at least they kept coming back, and they kept taking more steps forward. There was none of this, oh, well, it's not working, so we'll go home. Um, Look how long some of these missions lasted or have lasted. Um, and these were followed by the, the non-military mission in Afghanistan. Of course, we know in Afghanistan the military part was NATO. But there was UNAMA. Then in Burundi, uh, the DRC, Cote d'Ivoire, Liberia, Haiti, and two Sudan missions. Actually, three now. Um, and now discussions of one in Mali. So all that was moving forward and then the next breakthrough actually came from the World Bank Paul Collier who was one of the writers of the, one of the authors of the 2004 World Bank's annual development report on conflict and development which showed that many countries coming out of conflict particularly those known as the aid orphans I talked earlier about the neglected states and part of the reasons to why they became neglected, i.e. the non-performers, had fallen back into conflict within five to 10 years after a peace agreement. And he found these patterns that it was always happening. And many other researchers, I'm not saying it was just the World Bank, many other academics and researchers were d- documenting similar trends. And we only have to look at Haiti and Liberia. How often has the world gone in and come out and gone in and come out and come in and come out? And we're still in, although Liberia has really, really turned the the uh, turning around. Haiti, it's going to take longer. Um, Central Africa, the African Great Lakes region, serious and repetitive conflicts. And that's uh, another, that, that's the topic of a whole other discussion. So what was interesting here is that All of this was coming on board, and understanding of the relationships between all of these elements was coming out. And nobody was actually using the word peace building very often in the UN. But in fact, if you analyze what was happening, concepts and practices of peace building were moving ahead and were informing peacekeeping, humanitarian, and development approaches, although still more on parallel than uh, integrated uh, tracks. And in fact, through missions such as Kosovo, Afghanistan, East Timor, peace building came to be seen as facilitating the processes and building new national capabilities, and particularly in the rule of law and justice and human rights. These became very, very important. And funding was applied by the Security Council for these aspects. But traditional peacekeepers, both political and military, were very slow to acknowledge the role of traditional development fields such as health and education to address the causes of conflict and poverty as a basis for long term peace. And the infrastructure remains spread across multiple institutions and actors spanning military civilian divide, bilateral, multilateral, and civil society divides. And funding for anything beyond core Security Council. Activities remained a problem. You know, I, you're all aware of the fact that if you want to figure out what's wrong, follow the money. And the Security Council has a process. That I'm sure many of you are familiar with the difference in the UN between assessed and voluntary contributions. And uh, the Security Council has the legal right once the mission is authorized and once the elements of the mission are approved and once the budget is put up to say okay um, it's going to cost one billion dollars a year or 300 million dollars a year and everybody puts their hand in their pocket you know Samoa 0.2 0. percent 0. or whatever and everybody and the U.S. 20 to 25 percent Japan 20 percent and that's an assessment and it's done and then they say well the you know, we'll see what UNDP can come up with at their next fundraising. You know, it's like having a bake sale for peace building. And uh, so the voluntary contributions are way, way down. And I'll come back to that when I talk about the peace building fund. The, um, but people began to realize that that wasn't a very satisfactory way of doing things and Ending the war, it became more and more understand, understood that ending the war was not the end of the process, and elections weren't the end of the, the war. Collier also wrote a book about how post-election time was actually more dangerous than before, because then you had very clear winners and losers. And you were starting off with a whole new set of challenges that required a long-term major financial, political, military... Uh, commitments, and would require a whole new analysis of how the economic and social factors would interact with the political and security agenda. There were several attempts to address this. In 1998, the Security Council encouraged the Secretary General to find ways to establish a peace-building capacity. It never went ahead. Two years later, the Brahimi report actually recommended the creation of a focal point for peace-building in the Department of Political Affairs. And this got shot down by member states for other reasons, which I can go into if anybody's really interested. The fact is, nothing happened. So here was the context. And finally, Kofi Annan, who really was uh, Secretary General, who was a problem solver. It was a pleasure to work for him. Uh, He was a visionary and a problem solver. He launched in 2004 um, the report of the Secretary General's high-level panel on threats, challenges, change. Rather, he launched the panel, which produced a report. And this, uh, this report recommended... There were two things that came out of this report that had longer, long-standing uh, uh, effects. One was reforms to the Human Rights Commission, but the other was the creation of a new intergovernmental body. Now, you think the UN is proliferating all over the place with treaties for this and organizations for that, but the core function, the core structure of the UN, with its basic councils and commissions, has not changed since 1945. The Peacebuilding Commission was going to be the first edition of a fundamental core central body of the UN since 1945. And um, he proposed that a body be created because, quote, no part of the UN system effectively addresses the challenge of helping countries transition from war to lasting peace. And the, this body was to advise on and promote integrated strategies for peace building, focusing on a country at the time and bringing all the elements together. You'd have a peace building commission made up of member states, um, and it would bring together all kinds of people, troop contributors, donors, UN entities, regional actors, the AU, the, the regional um, actors in West Africa, East Africa, whatever, to look at post-conflict recovery strategies and facilitate coherent decision-making. And there would be a fund attached and also an office in the secretariat to support the the commission. And their job was to ensure predictable long-term financing. And this is This goes back to the fact the Security Council could ensure predictable financing for peacekeeping, but there was no predictable mechanism for financing. I'll jump to the end and tell you right away that hasn't actually happened yet. Um, But it was also to extend the period of attention. This idea that the international community had to stay the course and stay alongside, that peace building was a long-term effort. But also to try to work with academics, researchers, and other institutions to see if we could develop core best practices that would um, work across sectoral lines. Um, Thirty-one member states, um, they spent the first six months trying to figure out who was going to be the member. And of course, there was all this bogged down stuff at the UN, difficult procedural birth. It was very interesting. Once they got down to work, I suddenly realized that they really did want to make a name for the commission as a knowledge-based body. And there's something fundamentally contradictory in that because member state bodies are not operational. You need an operational arm, but they wanted to be operational. They wanted to run the fund. They wanted to run everything. We had to kind of curb the enthusiasm a little bit. Um, But Burundi and Sierra Leone came on the agenda big question was, well, why can't the Commission go out and say, we're going to deal with these countries? Well, you can... uh, The world doesn't work that way. Peace-building has to be internally driven. It must be externally supported, but it has to be internally driven. And unless a country comes to the Peace Building Commission and says, I want to work with you and I'm prepared to go through the process of analysis and strategy development and all of that, it's not going to work. It's not like the Security Council who can be, quote, seized of the matter and say what they like about whom they like. Peace Building Commission hasn't done that. So, in fact, their client base is actually quite small. They have Burundi and Sierra Leone were the first two. Then we brought in Guinea-Bissau and the Central African Republic, which unfortunately, as you know, has gone back to, has gone into conflict, which is really a shame. And then more recently, Guinea-Conakry and Liberia have been added. And I'd be happy to talk a little bit more about those processes if there are questions. But they have taken very seriously their mandate to bring together the relevant actors. And although it's a 31-member commission, they set up country mechanisms. And if, you know, if they're talking about Sierra Leone, you have to have Guinea Conakry at the table. Then, and if Guinea Conakry is not a member of the commission, well, they bring them onto to the Sierra Leone Country Committee. So they can bring anyone in. They had terrible trouble bringing in civil society actors. The Chinese wouldn't let them, and you couldn't have civil society in the room with member states in the UN, God forbid. And um, we all knew why, of course, because the the Chinese delegates in New York thought it was a great idea, but they knew if they went back home, the Chinese civil society would say, oh, well, okay, now can we sit down in government bodies, and oh, kind of any of that. Um, But the field The field got around it wonderfully because in Burundi and Sierra Leone, for example, and um, the local committees had civil society and Government and you know the Red Cross and the donors and the World Bank and everybody, and we started doing video conferences between the country the country groups and the headquarters group. And so all of a sudden you had Sierra Leone Civil Society on the screen in the room uh, with the the UN Commission, and nobody objected. That was all right. It was was far enough removed, but it worked. But we've wasted so much time on things like that. Um, The other thing that I think they got right to was was the whole question of local ownership. There was a little bit of, oh, well, if the country asked for it, then they that's what they get. Well, nobody had the means to give them everything they wanted. Um, And we set about designing a process of um, developing country peace-building strategies. And when I first proposed that, uh, everybody said, oh my God, not another strategy. We've got a World Bank strategy, we've got UN strategies, we've got donor strategies, we've got the government's own budget strategies. You don't need another strategy. We're not going to start over. I said, that's why you have to do this. And it's not starting over. You've got all the actors at the table. Let's put everything on the table that all of these different people have said is what needs to be done. And we'll see where the gaps are. But also, we'll get everybody to go fishing and to say, okay, out of all of this, what are the half dozen really important things that the international community and the country itself and the people of the country have to do to improve the quality of life of people on the ground and build sustainable peace. What are the first absolute things we have to do? And let's boil it down. And then let's commit to doing that first and, and seeing where we go, adapting it. And you know we can change things as we go, but that's it. And they bought that. And they went through uh, fairly heavy duty processes. I, I hear from my successor that they 've managed to lighten the process, and with all of this, the local country the country had to be in the driver 's seat and the commission really did buy into local local leadership and ownership and that is uh, you know you all know that better than I, um, but it cannot be overemphasized. So um, one worry was that it would just become a sort of funding mechanism. Actually, the truth is that it didn't become enough of a funding mechanism. And uh, the financing for post-conflict uh, recovery has been, uh, still remains a major, a major gap. The peacebuilding fund itself did grow up into uh, a very active mechanism most of the money goes to the countries on the commission's agenda but the secretary general has the authority to use the peace building fund in other crisis countries when it can if there are critical elements supporting a peace process or uh, providing the country with assistance that it feels is needed in order to maintain the peace and the peace building fund can be used for all of these things that the donors don 't want to put their ODA money into because they don 't get ODA credits. Good example was in Burundi one of the biggest human rights issues was uh, after the war was the the soldiers who were living off the land because and major human rights abuses, kicking people out of their villages and using local health clinics for their barracks and things and and uh you know some of the donors would just wag the finger and tell Burundi how bad they were and how awful, and in fact, we sat down with them and said, "Look, you know part of your problem is you don't have anywhere to keep your soldiers housed and fed, et etc. We can help you build the barracks you know if you can make sure that the soldiers say disciplined and you reduce the human rights abuses." And it turned out to be a very practical way of solving a physical problem and dealing with human rights at the same time. Rather than banging the table and saying, do this, do that, we said, this is part of why you have a human rights problem. We can help you solve it if you're prepared to go the distance on being serious about human rights. And their answer was, this is a dialogue that we can have, you know. We can move forward on this basis. And it was very practical and very useful. So I've kinda of gone off on my own. Don't know where I am now. Um at uh the, another area of, where the Peacebuilding Commission actually did do quite well was helping to keep these countries on, the track, on track politically. And here they ran into serious problems with the Security Council um, because the Security Council wanted the Peacebuilding Commission to be purely an advisory mechanism, and it is legally, eh? and it doesn't have the teeth of the Security Council. But if you have a country committee chair who is very active and working well with the countries. Am I running out of time? Yes. Okay, I'll, I'll wrap up. Then the, they really were very, were very successful in sitting down with the countries and helping to keep them on track. Um, let me close with two points. One is that um, there's no monopoly on peace-building activities within the UN. Many organizations and bodies have peace-building mandates. Um, the real question now is whether or not the peace-building... Uh, commission and the and the support mechanisms within the UN uh, can move forward to help people work together uh, even better. Um, there's a very useful 2012 annual report, the first annual report of the Peacebuilding Support Office that you can find on www.un.org, peace and security, peacebuilding. So my second point I'll close in with is what I call my six rules of peacebuilding. And some of these are just a repetition of what I've said, but I, I've put them together in point form. One, peace building will not succeed unless all the players are at the table and willing to share their understanding of the issues. Two, peace building has to start at the time of peacemaking, be inclusive of all aspects of society, and lay down a blueprint. Uh, one of the things I didn't talk about is, but I did mention, is that. If peace building is not inherent in a peace agreement, then you know it will be very, very difficult to sustain the course. Yeah. Three, in UN operations where there's a peacekeeping mission, peace building must go hand in hand and be funded accordingly. We're not there yet. Four, a new form of international partnership and support Uh, must emerge to help countries stay the course for peace. The new peace building architecture is a step in this direction but it won't solve all the problems. Five, peace building requires a better integration of political, security, economic, social and humanitarian approaches to ensure that these actors complement each other strategically. And finally, the sixth and final rule of peace building is that it never stops. Communities are looking too often for solutions. And what's a conflict rather than methodologies to manage conflict without resort to violence? We will always have conflict. Can we develop community, state level, international methodologies to manage conflict in a way that does not include violence? Thank you very much.